Kia ora and welcome to the Coronavirus Podcast. I'm Sarah Colcord and I'm the founder of the Facebook group New Zealand Made Products. I set this group up three weeks ago and it has over 380,000 members. I'm supporting small businesses across Aotearoa through this platform to enable them to survive and thrive during this challenging time. Sarah, thanks for all the mahi that you've been doing with that Facebook page. It's great. It's really given a platform for Kiwi entrepreneurs to keep trading and potentially save their businesses. And as a consumer, I've got to say, I've loved seeing all the amazing products and services that are being made in our backyard. If you're listening and you haven't seen it yet, check it out on Facebook. Just search for New Zealand Made Products. Kia ora, I'm Indira Stewart, your host for the RNZ Coronavirus Podcast. What new hobbies have you picked up during lockdown? Or what are the things that you've learned about yourself? Let us know using our RNZ Vox Pop app. It's free to download and it's easy to use. We'd really love to hear from you. Later on, our producer Jesse Chang looks at the struggles and sacrifices in the disability sector in the wake of COVID-19. But first, here are the headlines. Sadly, there's been another death. This time, it's a woman in her 60s from Rosewood Rest Home who had underlying health conditions. Now that brings our total death toll to 21. Our zero case streak has been broken. Director General of Health Dr Ashley Bloomfield says there are two new cases. One is probable and linked to the Margaret Rest Home cluster. And the other is linked to the Marist College cluster. And that's a student who tested positive for coronavirus. They had been contacted by Healthline in the first week of April as part of the contact tracing and were not unwell at that time, so did not progress to testing at this stage. It was part of the broader testing of Marist students and staff as they head back to school. Around 250 people have been tested so far. This is the only positive result from that group. The student has what we would call a weak positive test and is almost certainly late in the course of an infection. The significance of the weak positive result so late in the course of the illness when the symptoms that the student reported were actually some weeks ago. It's not fully understood and it's likely the person is not infectious at this stage and this is a pattern we have seen in some of our recent cases and also has been observed uh, internationally and the South Koreans uh, have done a study on a group like this uh, and subsequently followed that up with a study that suggested that this was the result of some viral fragments still being detected by the testing but not that the people were infective. So saying we are taking a precautionary approach as we should and the student will remain in isolation and be retested in a week's time. Meanwhile the Epidemic Response Committee heard horrific stories about experiences with different district health boards during the lockdown period. New mother Rebecca Burgess gave birth to her daughter at Wellington Hospital and she described her experience as traumatic. She was told that under COVID-19 rules at the hospital, partners had to leave shortly after the birth. Ms Bujess and her partner Cameron wanted a home birth so he could be there to support her. But her midwife pulled out at 38 and a half weeks of her pregnancy. She tried finding another midwife in time, but she was unable to. Around this point, having been through so much already, I absolutely did not want to be pregnant anymore. Please understand that I love my daughter very much and I had tried for a long time to get pregnant. I never thought I would be a mum. These thoughts were alarming. 
I frantically searched for another midwife who would support a home birth. I thought I'd found one. When my waters broke in the middle of the night, that midwife told me I needed an induction and she said if I didn't have one, she would not treat me. I felt vulnerable and unsafe. I did not want an induction and I'd lost another midwife. I had no support nor continuity of care with two midwives refusing to treat me at late stages of my pregnancy, I had no one to advocate for the natural birth I wanted, nor had I time to make an informed decision. I was terrified to go to Wellington Hospital because I knew my one support would be taken away. I had no choice. After giving birth at the hospital, things got worse. At the most vulnerable time of my life, bleeding and sobbing, I was wheeled into the postnatal ward and there I received substandard care. I was criticised for not having enough nappies, for not having enough newborn clothing. I would have a thought in a time of civil defence emergency, women in hospital would be provided essentials if they weren't able to bring them. I asked for help from the midwife in the hospital with feeding, and she told me there would be no midwife to help me at home, and I needed to do it myself. I hadn't been able to attend any breastfeeding classes before the virus hit. None of the postnatal ward staff wore PPE, nor did anyone in the birthing suite. Hand washing was almost non-existent in postnatal. Rebecca Burgess says Cameron had been in her bubble during the lockdown, and it made no sense why he wasn't allowed to support her after the birth. I failed to see how the risks of medical staff catching the virus were heightened by him being with me. We'd have had more chance of catching it from the hospital staff and the inconsistencies around the country were a hard pill to swallow. It was so very unfair that the birthing unit in Lower Hutt, merely 20 minutes away, allowed partners to stay for 48 hours following the birth. So why was there no national directive for this stuff? Why did the Ministry of Health not have fair, consistent policies that looked at all this in a holistic way? Here's another case. 66-year-old Jennifer Rouse also spoke to the committee and shared her experience of being diagnosed with breast cancer during the lockdown. She lives in Northland and was told that she could be waiting up to six months for the surgery that she needed. And she felt like she had no other choice but to pay $15,000 for a private surgery in Auckland. I'm left financially vulnerable as a result of that spend. And I feel very badly let down by the public health system and the care that was offered in, in Northland. Everything seemed to be on hold in a rush to accommodate potential COVID-19 patients and so many other people were ignored. Ms Rouse says it's unfair that the level of care from DHBs is dependent on where you live. If I was a resident in Auckland, I would have gone onto a waiting list with an indication of how long the wait might be. In that situation, I understand it was probably about two weeks. And that would have been then taken into account in decision making regarding appropriate treatment. The Prime Minister acknowledged that some of the experiences the submitters went through aren't reasonable even during the health crisis the country is going through. Some of the stories I've heard today don't fit with our expectations that we had. No one, no one should birth alone. 
Everyone should have been able to have a support person with them through that experience. So there are some stories and testimonies that I'm sure the Director-General will want to be looking at um, because there are some expectations that I don't think have been met from what we've heard today. Dr Ashley Bloomfield appeared before the committee today and heard directly some of the stories that were shared. The point I made is it's, it's very important to hear these stories and understand the impact on individuals and their whānau. These are things that we will use to inform not just our approach as we move through and down the alert levels, but also updating our policies in case we have to move up through alert levels. Mm. And I guess the point I did want to make is you know, what we always aspire to, whether it's a pandemic situation or not, is it should be consistent as appropriate and different as appropriate. And ultimately that comes down to clinical decisions and discussions between um, individuals and their whānau and clinicians. When asked whether the government had failed the submitters, Dr Bloomfield said no. Meanwhile, for the first time in history, Parliament will summon the Solicitor General. The Epidemic Response Committee is to also issue summonses to the Director-General of Health and the Police Commissioner seeking the legal advice for the lockdown. The Chair of the Committee and Leader of the National Party, Simon Bridges, says New Zealanders deserve to know whether the government actually had the legal powers to enforce a lockdown. But Jacinda Ardern says the advice given to her is clear. I've been consistently advised that there were no gap in our enforcement powers throughout our response. Um, what we have acknowledged is that actually some of the legislation that we've had to utilise, which include, for instance, uh, the epidemic notices and so on, actually probably could be more fit for purpose going forward because they tend to be designed for individuals rather than when you're dealing with the likes of a global pandemic. And the Police Commissioner Andrew Costa says officers have acted within the law. He says the police have been using the powers available to them under the Civil Defence Emergency Management Act and later under the Health Act. But speaking to Nine to Noon, Mr Costa said new legislation may be needed to set out the appropriate regime for police powers under Alert Level 2. I believe people will be looking for a greater mainstreaming of the controls and, and that's where some of the legal debate has been. You know, how long do you continue to operate under emergency provisions before you move into something that has been more carefully considered through Parliament? And that was backed by the Prime Minister. Greater clarity is required as you move down from what are more generic provisions, as you move down into lower levels, that we believe it would be right and proper for us to create more specificity around those enforcement powers. Uh, and so that is something that we've been working um, on with Crown Law. In other news, global tech giant Microsoft has announced it will establish its first data centre region in New Zealand. The company says it aims to fuel new growth that will accelerate digital transformation opportunities across the country. Now Jacinda Ardern has praised the announcement and she says big investments like a data centre signals to the world that New Zealand is open for business despite the COVID-19 pandemic. It is my view that by tackling the virus we have positioned our economy to be able to rebuild ahead of many others globally. That is our safe haven strategic advantage. International companies like Microsoft wouldn't be investing here or looking to invest here if they didn't have full confidence in the New Zealand economy that we are ready to welcome quality investment and offer a safe place for operation in both a health and business sense. 
Microsoft's plan will have to be approved by the Overseas Investment Office. For a lot of people, one of the hardest things during lockdown has been that they've been unable to be with loved ones. No one understands that better than carers of those with disabilities. Our producer Jessie Chang took a look at how the disability sector has been coping. Effective immediately, we will move to Alert Level 3 nationwide. After 48 hours, the time required to ensure essential services are in place, we will move to Level 4. These decisions will place the most significant restrictions on New Zealanders' movements in modern history. This is not a decision That announcement by Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern was the moment Kayleen Tofare realised her world was about to change. Straight away we, um, you know, we all got together and basically decided to lock, uh, do the whole, uh, you know, the whole entire four weeks with the girls in here, which was, uh, which was pretty hard, pretty hard leaving my family. Kayleen Tofare is a support worker for NZ Care and Disability in Nelson. When the lockdown order came through, she was faced with a tough choice stay with her family or look after Annalisa, one of her clients who has conditions that make her vulnerable to COVID-19. Kayleen chose the latter. I have grandkids that um, live at home with me permanently and a daughter that's pregnant with uh, twins. So uh, that, that was pretty hard. That's a massive change for you, Kayleen. Why, why was it so important for you to move into Annalisa's bubble and have to leave your own family behind. At the time, her, her mum couldn't do it, and um, it's my job, but, you know, they're, they're, we're kind of family anyway. You know, you, you, you get to the point where we really care and um, worry about the girls. I mean, it was a no-brainer, really. As soon as um, we discussed it, I put my hand up and said yes. Lockdown has been full of different activities, like baking and Tai Chi. Annalisa says it's been brilliant having Kayleen around. But some things have been hard to get used to. I've been missing my mum quite a, quite a lot. You've been able to keep in touch with your mum, though, over Skype and... Um, Facebook and over the phone as well. And waving to her over the road. So she, she lives really close to where you are? Uh, yes, she does. What are you looking forward to the most when we get to level two? Hugging mum. The New Zealand Disability Support Network says many other support workers have made similar sacrifices to protect those in their care over the last few weeks. But its chief executive, Garth Benny, says needs in the sector have been largely ignored. Many providers have felt quite abandoned, is a word that's used, abandoned and unsupported by the ministry, uh, ignored, um, and that their, their concerns have not been taken as seriously as they might have been. Garth Benny says the sector was already under financial pressure pre-COVID-19, and the virus has only made it worse. Under level four lockdown, many of our providers lost up to 20, sometimes 30% of their staff because of their age, for over 70, or because of compromising health conditions. So those staff had to be replaced in some way, shape or form. And so that's been a significant cost. Um, early on in the piece, the um, ministry advised providers that they were going to reimburse costs. 
There are also staff-related costs whenever a staff member has had to go into isolation uh, or, you know, for a two-week period, they had to be replaced as well. And trying to minimise the number of bubbles that staff worked across and keeping the size of bubbles in residential services in particular uh, manageable has also incurred significant staffing costs. The other area of significant costs was the absolute debacle that the provision of uh, PPE has been, personal protective equipment. Uh, many providers uh, felt that they had to go and purchase that themselves from private suppliers because the supply through the ministry and DHBs was either erratic, uh, non-existent or um, not enough or a combination of all that. An independent review of the distribution of PPE is currently underway. Its main aim is to find out how the gear gets from district health boards to frontline services. Garth Benny says access to PPE has improved, but it's a little too late for those who have already shelled out money to buy their own. I asked him how much money disability service providers have paid out of their own pocket to cover COVID-19 related costs. We're at the very least talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars um, and several million, several million dollars. Providers have been advised and we've certainly been advising our members to make sure they keep a very accurate record of those costs. Has the government given any indication about when these providers might be able to see these reimbursements? No, um, and I suspect it won't be until after the budget next week that we'll have any indication uh, to what extent the reimbursements will be made and what that process will look like. Garth Benny has been in regular contact with the Associate Minister of Health, Jenny Salesa, but he sees a lack of clarity and timelines for their immediate needs remain. parent will tell you that homeschooling kids during lockdown has come with its challenges. But what if your children have extra learning needs? Kia ora, I'm Fian Wadia. I'm a parent to three boys um, aged 11, 13 and 15 and all of them have a range of disabilities and additional learning needs, um, autism, dyslexia, it's a whole wide range. <laughs> Normally, Freyan's children go to school where they are supported by specific carers. Her husband works full-time and under Level 4, he's been an essential worker. So, when Level 4 was announced, it threw the mother of three in a loop. My initial thought was panic, you know, what's going to happen, how are we going to get through. And also not knowing, because of, you know, the level of needs my children have, I've always been well organised, prepared, planning things in advance. So, you know, I've got things um, under control and I can manage things, you know. And I think what's happened with the lockdown was we didn't have any of that opportunity to prepare or plan, do anything in advance, really. So... That caught me off guard. It took me a week at least to adjust to, you know, getting into the new routine and everything. Can you describe to me what a typical day would look like, having to keep them engaged and, you know, learning? For my oldest boy, I have 
sort of my priority is just keeping him happy. So he decides when he wakes up, you know, he might wake up at nine or he might wake up at 10, 11, and then he'll sort of, you know, have his breakfast um, and chill out with his iPad. And so, so I sort of let him be. His only role sort of, you know, in terms of routines is I make sure he helps out with chores. So he does a little bit of, you know, cooking once in a while, helps me out, emptying the dishwasher, things like that. The other two boys sort of are, are the ones that work with me a lot more and so we'll set up on the dining table you know both of them sort of sitting and doing their work I'll sit down with my laptop and you know do my work whatever it is and then supervise them that way my husband sort of you know gets into the study usually and I think sometimes you know we we take turns with the study (laughs) so I can have a few sort of you know quieter easier meetings where I'm not supervising kids and sort of you know on a meeting or doing work. Freeanne Wadia works part-time at a specialist early childhood centre and helps to run an online support group for families of children with special needs. Her sons all receive funding for specialist support from the government's ongoing resourcing scheme. But that's not the case for everyone. That's been my concern that there are children who don't have that kind of, you know, or funding or spe- specific sort of specialist support, but they still have additional learning needs and they've fallen through the cracks. And there's quite a few families who have been struggling, um, which has been a challenge. The Ministry of Education did include support for students with extra learning needs in its response to COVID-19. This includes a support group on Facebook that refers parents to one-on-one support, live Q&A sessions and other online tools. But for many, homeschooling kids under lockdown has been a step into uncharted territory. Freyan Wadia says her family definitely have had their ups and downs. You know, my oldest son, he's so much calmer. He loves the fact that I think, you know, I'm around the house so much more. And um, he's, he's really relaxed. And so he, I know he's definitely enjoyed it. And my middle one has loved spending a lot more time with me. My youngest one, though, isn't too happy because he finds me doing, you know, the learning with him quite challenging and stressful. And I do, too. Uh, <laughs> So he's, he's quite ready for school. In fact, when we went to level three, he thought he was going back to school. And he said, you know, can I, can I? And I said, no, you can't, you know, unless your parents are, you know, absolutely um, stuck in terms of, you know, finding childcare for you. I said, you're lucky I'm home. So, you know, we can carry on. And I think he misses having, you know, the, um, the, the school environment. That was Freyan Wadia finishing off that report by our producer Jesse Chang about how COVID-19 has impacted the disability sector. And in a statement, the Ministry of Health says it's in the process of providing advice to ministers on the scale of additional costs to disability service providers. It says that advice will help ministers to make decisions on what support may be available. The Ministry says it's disappointed to hear providers feel abandoned And it's encouraging those with extreme financial pressures to get in touch directly. Well, New Zealand, today we find out what the rules for Level 2 are. And tomorrow we'll break down what that means for you. So don't forget to tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Take care, be kind. Kia haumaru, kia kaha. The Coronavirus Podcast is presented by me, Indira Stewart. It's produced by William Ray, Jesse Chang, Sonia Sly and Katie Gossett. 
Our sound engineer is Adrian Holley, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can subscribe to the Coronavirus Podcast anywhere, and it's free. Just go to the podcast and series page at rnz.co.nz. Thank you.